Yeah, okay. I I actually know what's going on here. I th- I think it's uh the speakerphone. That's feeding back everything I say. Oh, it is. I I think it is. I'm just going to k- keep going. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you see. It. <laughs> You see, we're just going to be sitting here listening to ourselves and everything we say, 10 seconds delayed. Very long pauses. I don't know if that's coming through on the actual, uh, for listeners on the show or not, but it's going to be very disorientating for us. Um, <laughs> the, thing that, the thing about it is that people people may not be hearing that. It may be just because we're hearing it back through our own head, headphones, you know? Do you do you have a regular phone in the house anywhere, Sandra? Um, if you call my husband's cell, I can give you his number. Yeah, well, you can't you you can't give it on the air. Okay, so so it's not so it's not actually coming through on the on the show for people. People are very confused because they're not hearing the duplicate. So, um, we... Get the other number. Okay. Tell her to send it by email. Oh, she can call her. Uh, should I just call back on this number that I'm seeing? Can she give her the number and she can call in? Yeah, I'll just call back in on this number that <clears throat> came up on my phone. The, yeah. The number seven one eight five zero eight nine four nine nine. Oh, okay. Hold on. That's not the number that's showing. <clears throat> one sec. Okay, disconnect. Okay. Seven one eight. What's the rest of it? Five zero eight nine four nine nine. Nine four nine nine. Okay. Call right back. All right, thanks. 
All right, folks, for those of you who are listening, uh, we're just having some technical difficulties here, and we hope we have them resolved now, and we'll be getting on with the show as soon as possible, so just give us a few minutes. Yeah, she just hung up, right? We'd like uh, somebody. Actually, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I think we may. I may have. I may have discovered the problem. Um, let me. Let me try again. Um, this is all really live and happening for our listeners, isn't it? It's really like they're really. I would be. On the edge of my seat if I was listening to this kind of show. Yeah, it's like the shadow, you know, a creaking door and everything. I I think I um I'm just trying to call Sandra back here. I think that was uh I think it was my fault. I'm gonna have to take I'm gonna have to take responsibility for that. How not to build a light bulb. Hi. She's probably trying to call. Hi, this is Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Hi, we can we can call you back actually. We we sorted the problem out. Just okay. so you don't have to just so you don't uh, spend any money or waste any money on uh, on calling uh, us. So uh, I'm gonna call okay. you back on okay. our original okay. phone, okay? All right, talk to you in a minute. Y'all just hang on out there. This is the learning curve, you know? A rather steep one. (laughs) He took responsibility. I did. You're you're calling my cell phone that has a speakerphone. Do you need my other phone? No, that's That's fine. fine. We're just going to go with the original plan. All right. Okay. we're going to take it from the top again. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Stop Talk Radio. This week we return to the topic of psychopathy and psychopaths, but from the perspective of personal relationships, and specifically women who have fallen in love, in quotes, with a psychopath or a psychopathy-disordered partner, to give it a more clinical description. With me in the studio are Laura, uh, Juliana, and Anna, and on the phone is our special guest, Sandra L. Brown. Just to give you some background on Sandra, she holds a master's degree in counseling with a former specialization in personality disorders and pathology. She is a program development specialist, lecturer, community educator, and award-winning author. Her books include the award-winning Women Who Love Psychopaths, Inside the Relationships of Inevitable Harm with Psychopaths, Sociopaths, and Narcissists, as well as How to Spot a Dangerous Man Before You Get Involved, and Counseling Victims of Violence, a handbook for helping professionals. Sandra is recognized for her pioneering work on women's issues related to relational harm with cluster B access to sociopathy and psychopathy disordered partners. She specializes in training professionals from various professions about pathological love relationships based on her books and products. 
She helps women's organizations modify their survivor support services to include recognizing pathological love relationships. Sandra maintains a website for survivors and professionals at saferelationshipsmagazine.com and is a writer for Psychology Today. She has been interviewed for magazines such as Seventeen and has appeared on more than 5,000 shows, including Anderson Cooper's daytime show, Anderson. And now she can also add Sock Talk Radio to that impressive list. <laughs> so you're very welcome to Sock Talk Radio, Sandra. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Finally, we got you here. Yay! I just want to start out with just telling a little story because it's kind of strange how life goes and how people's interactions with one another uh, develop over time. Uh, back in, oh, when when was the Rogers murder, Sandra? It was back oh, in the eight, late 80s, wasn't it? Yes, late 80s. Yeah, well, I remember during the late 80s, you know, this, this terrible murder and how everybody in Florida was looking for somebody who had taken a mother and her two daughters who were on holiday in Florida and had uh, taken them out on a boat and murdered them, you know, violently and viciously. And I was pregnant with my fifth child, I think, somewhere around that time. And uh, not too long afterward, after the baby was born, we uh, we moved into uh, a different house in Newport Ritchie, which was some distance away from where we were living in the country. A few years later, uh, we moved in the house in 1990. A few years later, I got involved in the um, uh, into several different kinds of research that included uh, UFO research. And I ended up giving a talk at a Clearwater MUFON meeting. And at that MUFON meeting, there was a St. Pete Times journalist and photographer sidekick uh, name of Thomas French and Cherie Diaz. And Thomas uh, was, well, he was quite taken with the topic and he uh, decided that he wanted to follow me around for a while. And I am getting feedback from the uh, speakerphone. Uh, but anyway, uh, Thomas uh, came along and he started, he practically moved into our house. <laughs> it was, it seemed that way sometimes because he would spend an awful lot of time at our house. And we did many, many interviews and photo sessions and so forth, and my kids were growing up at the time, one of whom is sitting at the tape here. Some years later, uh, in 2000, he published this article in the St. Pete Times, and it was like a 20-page takeout section. And not too many years after that, we left the U.S. and came to France. I had never met Sandra at this point. So... During the course of uh, of my later work after this Thomas French article came out, and I would even say that it was rather because of it, because when you get some media attention on something that offends other people, uh, you become a target of attack. So I became a target of a uh, of a small gang of internet troll type psychopaths or grifters or whatever, and that was what got me involved in researching psychopathy. So I was researching psychopathy, and that's what brought me together with 
Sandra because we began to communicate. Oddly enough, after we communicated for a number of years on the topic, we discovered that one of her former counseling partners had been the same woman that I had shared a house with when I was going to college, believe it or not. And Sandra herself had been the topic or the subject of one of Thomas French's uh, lengthy article interviews, as well as the topic of uh, the Rogers murder, which was something that uh, kind of tied in there or wove in there all together. And right at the end, while he was still working on the interviews with me, or right at the time that it was being published, there was another horrific murder in Florida where a teenage girl and her boyfriend murdered her mother by injecting her with bleach and stuffing her body into a witch can. So there's all this psychopathy going on all around, weaving in and out, and you know Sandra's life and my life being connected by this individual that was her counseling uh, colleague and who had been my roommate, and Thomas French. So it was it was just really a bizarre series of little funny connections that all circled around psychopathy. So what do you think about that, Sandra? It is the most bizarre story story dating back, you know, into the 80s. Back in the 80s, um, the way I got involved in the field of psychopathy is that my father was murdered by a psychopath. And in the 80s, I was so devastated and destroyed, you know, by the murder. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. And I became involved in a homicide survivor's pilot program in Florida. And uh, it was the first time they did it to try to see if homicide survivors responded to this type of therapy. And it was during that time period that our whole group started attending um, murder trials sitting there, you know, with other family members, et cetera. And that's how I met Tom French. Um, he started doing a story on one of the survivors um, that was in our group. And he ended up doing a story on the homicide survivors group. And we stayed in touch, you know, for years after that. So it was so bizarre to meet you, Laura, um, be chatting about psychopathy. Um, my Dangerous Man book, I think it just came out when, when I met you. And somewhere along during, after months of chatting about psychopathy, it is when you asked, did I know Tom French? And what a um, lineup of the universe bringing two people together um, through psychopathy and through the same person. It, it's just really amazing. It kind of gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? It, it does, and um, and then to find out, yes, my my clinical uh, supervisor was also, you know, a roommate, and you, I guess you attended some classes uh, at the same time. It's just what a small planet it is when when you're focused on psychopathy. It's it's a bizarre and wild story. Strange but true. So, anyway, I have in front of me here this book, your latest book, I believe, Women Who Love Psychopaths. And this is, in my opinion, probably 
the most essential book that any woman will ever have or read. I think every woman should have a copy of it. I think every mother should buy copies for their daughters and daughters for their mothers and sisters and aunts and and you know, my husband said that you know really ought to mention something about women psychopaths too. And mm-hmm. I promised him that we would at least mention that, so I just mentioned it. <laughs> so, but no, if at some point you want to kick in something about women psychopaths, but this is basically about women who love psychopaths. So, um, I'm not going to read from it. I'm going to kind of play dumb here and uh, ask you to tell us why it was you came to focus on the women, the uh, the you know, the targets of the psychopath. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I've worked in the, the field of personality disorders for 25 years, and when I started out as a young, new therapist, um, I did not set out to work in the field of personality disorders. I don't think anyone does. It, it, it's so hard and horrific that I don't think anybody knowingly chooses that path, but I ended up getting clients that had personality disorders, borderline, narcissist, antisocial. And before I knew it, you know, my practice was primarily those personality disorders. And the side storyline to that is that um, while trying to help people who have personality disorders, what I noticed most was the inevitable harm that happened to all the other people in their life because of the personality disorder. And so inevitably, of course, their relationships didn't work. And so they would come into counseling, um, you know, seeking help, mostly because the relationship with their partners or their children or their jobs was not working out. And so I began to run groups for the partners of cluster B personality disorders and the children of personality disordered people. And it was during that time period I couldn't, I realized I there was no information to be had about the relational damage and the relationship dynamics. And the longer I was in practice, the more, the more people I got to where then I began to get you know, partners of narcissists and partners of sociopaths and eventually partners of psychopaths. And it was over the course of those years where I sort of um, jumped the side of the fence, if you will, and began, I stopped treating people with personality disorders because I found the treatment outcomes so low to be nil almost. Um, and started working with those of inevitable harm. And when I decided to write the book about women in relationship with psychopaths, I was mortified, sort of, to find absolutely no research. And why we ended up doing the research um, was because I could find nothing. And I'm not technically a researcher. I'm a therapist and a writer, and did it out of necessity to be able to write more in depth about those who ended up in the relationships. And 
put into into together over the years was I began to notice that these women had unusual elevated temperament traits that began to make me wonder if there wasn't a reason behind why they were attracted to and tolerant of some of the most disordered people around. And so that's really um, why I did research and why I wrote the book. Did you ever uh, read the book or see the movie about Ken McElroy, the psychopath who held an entire uh, county or several counties captive in, uh, where was it? It was Arkansas? Um, yeah, I think so. It's called In Broad Day- Daylight. The movie's called In Broad Daylight, and it's got Brian Dennehy, but the book is much better. And it's about, uh, I mean, the women surround him as bad as he treated them, you know, after he was dead, they would cry. He was such a wonderful man. He was a wonderful father. It was this, that. I mean, the guy was was absolutely the most classic psychopath of the type you're describing that I have ever encountered in my in reading the literature. It was just absolutely amazing. And these women, I I would expect, if you've not read the book uh, or seen the movie, you might want to do it because it's something that you could probably recommend to you know. Uh, many of your uh, clients or uh, therapists to get an idea. But anyway, the one thing I was noticing in one of your articles here was you were talking about how many people are affected by psychopathy. And in one, you know, the the experts who work with the criminal psychopaths say it's about 1% of the population. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, but Martha Stout gives it more like 4% because she's right. talking about the the psychopath although she uses the term sociopath, which I think was a sellout. I wish she had I wish she had been, you know, uh courageous enough to use the actual word psychopath. But in any event, she gives it something like 4% or and you've got this at uh I've got this article in front of me where you estimate that out of a 304 million population and I think that might be a little low. I think the population is about three fifty now, three hundred and fifty million. Mm-hmm. Well in any event in any event at three hundred and four million that's twelve sixteen million psychopaths that are basically non criminal psychopaths are the ones that fly under the radar. And if each one of those people has uh you know five relationships and they're probably serial or uh, simultaneous, you never can tell. That means that they are affecting uh, 60.8 million people, you know, directly right. in, in relationship. Well, if each one of those partners that they are affecting or whose lives they are destroying in one way or another, they have parents, they may have children, they may have sisters or brothers or whatever. So if you figure just an average five additional people, first degree away or second degree effect mm-hmm. of the psychopath, You've multiplied that, and you've got 250 million people affected by mm-hmm. psychopaths. That's almost, I mean, that's getting close to the to the population of the, of the entire country. I well, I I know, and I mean, I I keep throwing these numbers out there as a way of trying to generate, you know. Um, a startle reflex in people that, you know, even at my conservative number at 60 million people, 
if there was a medical condition that affected 60 million people, there would be a national billboard campaign. There would be a celebrity spokesperson. There would be all this focus. And yet here we have, you know, the number one public health problem um, anywhere is psychopathy, and we have absolutely no public uh, pathology awareness campaign that's funded by anyone other than a few therapists out there screaming into the media. And um, it, it's absolutely crazy that the numbers are that high, and yet we have almost nothing existing. Can you describe to us what damage the psychopath does to a woman and her family so that we have a good idea of what kind of a problem we're looking at here with these 60 million direct victims. What I mean, what what, is, what does it do to them? Well, uh, um, over 50% of the women leave the relationship with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is serious. And, and most of them have complex PTSD, which is for life. Uh, um, you know, the, the symptoms fluctuate, um, you know, with stress over the course of their lives. But because so many of these psychopaths are white-collar, the women we have, um, you know, are attorneys and doctors and CEO of corporations who have been involved with men of similar stature um, and financial uh, um support over the years, and they come out of these relationships with uh, um, post-traumatic stress. A lot of them have to step down out of their positions. Physicians are, you know, on impaired practitioner leave. Um, attorneys step down to paralegals, and um, these people are, are dramatically impacted in their function level, not only their mental health, but their ability to, um, you know, function. A lot of them end up on uh, financial support and, you know, in the legal system for years and years because psychopaths never resolve their cases. And so what we see is kind of a trickle-down effect into all the major systems, societal systems, that are impacted by psychopaths. So, you know, when, when a woman or, or man um, is impacted, you know, by a psychopath, there is the mental health system that's impacted, but also their physical health. Um, so the health care system is impacted, certainly the judicial um, system, because psychopaths don't resolve their issues and they go on forever. Uh, um, and if they have children with them, then, then there is the problem, um, you know, with, with supervision and child custody and just goes on and on. So really, I, I think what, what has really um, impacted me is that every piece of their, of their lives are impacted um, by psychopathy, whether it's their financial, their career, their mental health, their physical health, their children's health, and um, and then the, then the legal the burden on the legal system, um, you know, from psychopathy is huge. Mm -hmm. 
So we've got 60 million women with post-traumatic stress disorder who are probably not able to be productive members of society anymore because they are having to deal with this incredible stress. They have health problems that are bogging down the medical system. Uh, They can't earn a living probably because they have post-traumatic stress, and therefore they end up on welfare food stamps. Their children uh, suffer some kinds of disorders because they were brought up in a family that was unstable or violent or at the very least manipulative and unpleasant. So they get things like conduct disorders and they need supervision. And there's 60 million of of them, of the women, and probably that other, uh, you know, if you've got 60 million women and one or two kids each, that's 120 million children so you, right there, you've got 180 million people, which is virtually half of the U.S. population, that is causing a drain on the system because they have been damaged by psychopaths, and nobody gives a flying, uh, you know what? Right. Well, I, you know, part part of what we've been trying to do is educate the judicial system. So, um, not long ago, I did a a, a training for the judicial system, and, you know, I keep bringing up this concept about who does that. I mean, when we look at our system, any of our societal systems, um, and start to look for the psychopathy impact, um, we can begin to see it. The the problem is so many of them fly under the radar, not only because if they're white-collar and successful, no one suspects them, but also because different systems have different names for psychopaths within their own system. And unfortunately, we're not speaking the same language to get on the same page. So, the, you know, the, if they ever get caught and get in the criminal justice system, they have language for it. Um, the attorneys have call it something else. Mental health calls it something else. Social services calls it something else. And I, and I think that we are missing the huge impact, like you said, over 100 million people impacted by psychopathy only because that we are not speaking the same language. And like I said, if any <laughs> other area um, like medicine was impacted by a disorder of 100 million people, uh, we'd be doing something the hell about that. Yeah, I mean, look at all of the stuff they've got about anti-smoking, but you don't see any, uh, you know, psychopath-free zones or uh, no psychopaths in public or no psychopaths in office space. Uh, you know, it's it's like, it's and smoking, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there, but you know what I'm saying? They, they they go after something that is uh, probably the least offensive of self-medicating uh, activities that people do and let something as huge as this, 180 million people suffering because of psychopathy, suffering uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, health-related uh, issues that are caused by stress. Uh, probably a lot of these women end up getting cancer. Or they probably, you know, have something like autoimmune. Autoimmune disorders are the big things among um, among these types of women. The children, uh, it's just a huge 
freaking waste of human life, of of decent human beings who should have been taught about psychopathy when they were young, who should not have gotten into these relationships. Once they got into them, they should have received the help that they needed to get out. The individuals who caused these problems should, you know, be uh, there should be a way to detect them and a way to get them off the street or get them out of situations where they hurt other people. Uh, if women were aware, psychopaths would become extinct simply by virtue of the fact that women would avoid having anything to do with them because they would know in advance that it was, as you say, a relationship of inevitable harm. And after a while, after a couple of generations, they wouldn't, you know, there would not be so many psychopaths reproduced, uh, which reminds me, let's ask, let's ask, what do you think about the causation, genetics or is it nature or nurture? Well, I I, I think that, that there is two separate. I, I think true psychopaths, you know, have much more of the genetic aspect. We see psychopaths born into, you know, fairly normal families, you know, without traumatic and abusive histories. Um, antisocials and sociopathic disorders, um, more so from the environment of the abuse and neglect in the environment. Um, and a lot of times those get lumped together, the whole antisocial, sociopathic, psychopathic people tend to put it under one umbrella, even though they they are different disorders with different causations, I believe. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, different viewpoints on that, but um, I, I think psychopaths are in a category in of themselves. All by themselves, almost like another species. Yes. Uh, um, and, and, and certainly, um, genetically and, and the neuro abnormalities of it are, are. I mean, we are, we have all the MRI studies. We we understand that now. I think think we're sort of um, uh, come to a, a point of recognizing that that piece of psychopathy, you know, yeah. Um, has the, the genetic and neuro abnormalities that although we're seeing more and more of the uh, the, the neuro abnormalities and being able to tr- trace it now, um, not the exact same as psychopathy, but similar neuro abnormalities in the same brain regions in some of the cluster B disorders. And I think we'll get to a day with, where that will be readily known and accepted that there there are there are neuroabnormalities in these disorders. Well, here's a question for you. Since we've got, according to Martha Stouts and your figures here, something like 12 million psychopaths in the United States, and most of them are, as you say, white-collar workers, and the tendency of the psychopath is to rise to the top because not having a conscience, uh, ethical considerations don't enter into their cost-benefit analysis for their career path, um, perhaps part of the problem is is that most of them are at the top, and it's one of the reasons why we don't have the education and the support for making people aware. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I, absolutely. <laughs> I um 
Robert Hare and Paul Babiak, you know, wrote wrote the book Snakes and Tooth, which was sort of the beginning of the awareness about white collar psychopathy, and um, and I think the study of that has continued to grow, where we recognize that psychopathy in and of itself is very aggressive, um, not only in the human race, you know, to have lots of kids and perpetuate itself, but it's also aggressive um, in, in the, the career field, and it seeks out those um, high positions within um, any field, but, but specific fields in general. And um, when you start getting, a, whether it's a government or a company that is heavily laden at the top with psychopathy, um, you know, it stinks from the the fish stinks from the head down, and, and that worldview uh, that a psychopath has begins to infiltrate um, and impact um, wh- wherever it is. And of course, the scariest part of that is in government, which, um, thanks to you, Laura, the reading the, the book on political ponderology where we, we can see psychopathy, you know, filtering through governments in which it, it starts to impact a nation's entire worldview. And, and so I think psychopathy is so scary because it's not just a woman being impacted or a child being raised, you know, in an environment of psychopathy. It is a, an entire nation be, becoming entranced into um, a worldview, not only through a government, but through um, a whole system that begins to impact how we see ourselves, others in the world. Absolutely. But Sandra, I wanted to ask you as well, now that you mentioned ponderology and, uh, and psychopaths in power, uh, one of the things Domachewski says is that psychopaths are able to recognize each other. Do you think that that's something, you know, do you agree with that stance and uh, do you see that happening in, in the way they form cliques or they, um, they rise to power? Now they're doing this whole propaganda about how character um, uh, psychopathic traits are positive and things to, to um, aspire to. I don't know if you've heard that, but um, they're talking about how Kennedy, for example, had psychopathic trait and uh you know which is not true which is obviously not true yeah but uh you know do do they really recognize each other they do this on purpose or they, or is it just a product of who they are oh no i i think they definitely recognize each other i i mean i i, I can only speak from the the therapeutic aspect but having run for instance um, better intervention groups. It, it was always interesting to see the dynamics in groups, that the, that the, the psychopaths, the sociopaths, the antisocials in group, how they supported, <laughs> supported each other's worldview in groups. So, so there are normal guys that are batters that have a meltdown for whatever reason, you know, and batter, but they're not likely to batter again and be in your group again and again. The, the, the psychopaths 
and the others are, are likely to be in again and again. Uh, um, part of it because of the impulse control problems. But it would be interesting in group, like the, 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 the non-pathological batterer, you know, w would offer an insight in, into his behavior. And immediately the psychopaths, you know, would align together. And, and it's funny, they may never have met before group. It may be the first group. And, and yet those um, psychopathic kinds of traits are already um, supporting each other, um, explaining away sort of the, their, their uh, distorted worldview and beginning to support each other in group. And you could see the lines drawn, the non-pathological abusers on one side and, and, the, and the psychopathic abusers on the other side. So just from a therapeutic standpoint, could definitely see that. So, you know, elevate that in, into a, a corporation in, in which top heads of a company um, need to support each other's um, distorted corporate worldview. And I definitely think that, that they can find each other. And again, psychopathy, you know, being an adaptive kind of mechanism, you know, they become little child psychologists. Psychopathy, you know, happens in childhood that they become little child psychologists at an early age. So they begin to study um, behavior, not only their behavior, but behavior in other people. And, and I think they become very adept at not only being able to recognize and pick out the, uh, the victims that they're going to go after and those traits, but being able to find someone of like mind um, in their, their own environment. Did you ever get any, this is something that's always made me curious, uh, did you ever get any ideas from anything any of them ever said about how they select their victims, what uh, what guides them or leads them? I mean, other than interacting with them and determining that there may be a weak person or whatever kind of personality they are. We'll get to that in a minute. But do they ever indicate how and why they select their victims? Some of them did in groups. Uh, um they, they talked. I mean, they're, they're, they are human psychologists, so, so they pick up on body language, um, eye connection or not, um, language. I mean, one of the things we do know about psychopaths is, is they are language oriented. Um, there, there are things that they listen for, body language. They look for. Um, and certainly temperament traits, um, I, I think more than anything that they sort of test out the, the temperament part. And I, I think what, what they throw out early on is, is always the empathy card. Um, that, uh, they'll throw out, you know, a sad story about themselves to see the reactions and people that don't nibble about the empathy stuff, they... They keep they move on and keep throwing it out till they find someone that has an empathetic reaction to them. 
There's no use that's going there. Fascinating. They can't get it. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing and creepy. They threw out the empathy card. Yeah, don't tell um, an abuse story typically, or maybe their dad was military and was really hard on them, or they're a Vietnam vet, even though they're too young or too old. Their mother <laughs> abused them. Yes, yes. Uh, raised in poverty or pulled himself up by the bootstraps. And and, and Martha Self talks about this too, you know, that, that once... Oh. That, very early on, they, they will um, test the, the victim card. And I think that's true, even with white-collar um, psychopaths, that they will still need to test the empathetic reaction because that that is the key to the rest of her temperament, her temperament issues he's going to draw on. And what is it exactly that they're looking for? What is their motivation what are they fishing for? Well, I, I I think for different ones it's different things. They, um, white collar guys are not always looking, you know, for the financial card. Um, some some of the more antisocial guys, sometimes the blue collar guys that don't have the financial income are often, you know, looking for the financial support, but when you start getting into the white-collar guys um, that have all the money, not they're not always looking for the sugar mama. Um, so um, most they're, of they're it... Looking for some, they're looking for someone to victimize. Look, yeah, they're looking yeah. for the uh, prey, the, the, the prize uh, wife that they can carry on their arm or whatever or... Or a game. Or a game. Well, I think it all comes down to a kind of uh, of just a victimization. Sex, I mean, yeah. you can you can victimize uh, someone by bilking them of all of their money, uh, or you can, if you have your own money, you victimize someone by basically abusing them emotionally. You get the same result, which is you yeah, know a domination and, 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 and domination and, and destruction of another person and a feeding in that way. We have a caller. We have a call. Hey, oh, hang on. No, sorry, we don't. They just hung up. So carry on. I, 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 absolutely. Um, you know, for some of them, it, it is primarily the ability to victimize. And I think this is where these women differentiate from the domestic violence stereotype, which has low self-esteem, you know, struggles maybe financially. So here we have women that are attorneys, physicians, CEO of companies that are being targeted by white-collar psychopaths. So um, that's a big catch. I mean, this is like the shark tank. Um, and many of them have said, have said, I always wanted to take down a CEO. I've always wanted to take down an attorney. And so for some of them, it, 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 it is the game, but a big game, you know, in, in not to just taking down um, more of the stereotyped domestic violence victims. Okay, we've, getting, got, we, we've got a caller. We've oh, got a caller. Hold we have on a, one second. I think we have a caller back here. Hang on. <clears throat> Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello. Am I the caller? Yes. No. Sandra? Hi. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm calling from the United States. Okay. Hi, Jill. 
Okay. Um, my question or um, my situation is um, I have a narcissistic mother background, just to throw that out there, and then I was in a circumstance with a psychopath that um, threw out the pity me card and all of that right away, and I had some privilege in my life, financial privilege, and I felt, you know, sad for this person and, you know, wanted to help them and got in way over my head very quickly, um, got out, everything, you know, was it was difficult, but I did, you know, get out, and then um, shortly after, I was notified by the police that this person was a rapist and had been attacking women, and I've been really struggling with that for a long time, um, and just trying to figure out, um, you know, what that means for me, and then I got into a relationship finally after many years that after that that didn't turn out well, and I'm you know, throwing out the pity card myself about how can you do this to me after everything I've been through, and I'm starting to wonder, you know, if I'm, you know, the psychopath here now too. So I don't know if any of that makes any sense, but what do you, what does that mean to you? Mhm. Well, first of all, let me direct you to the book because it's more than what we can cover, you know, in, in this phone conversation. So women who love psychopaths. Um, what we found is um, that there are such excessively elevated temperament traits in women who have ended up in, in these types of relationships that place them at risk. And, and some of those elevations include hyper-empathy, hyper-tolerance, responsibility, loss of compassion, high relationship investment, all, there's 30-some traits um, of which when looked on a bell graph, there was no bell curve. It was like the Rocky Mountains coming off the end of the graph paper. And so these aren't little elevations. These are huge elevations. And all of the traits are positive, that any normal man would be very blessed to have a woman uh, um, with these trait elevations. The problem is is that they are so excessive that it proves that even too much of a good thing can be um, a bad thing in the hands of a psychopath, that he can use anything as a weapon, Mm -hmm. even wonderful positive traits. And, And so... Our traits, our temperament traits are innate. We are born with those traits. Our environment can enhance those. Um, If we're born into uh, a family, you you mentioned having um, a narc mom. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times that makes us excessively tuned into the needs of other people. Others, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and then you add to that that your temperament is already like that, and then your environment encouraged and supported that. And so we we take ourselves in all of these traits and experiences into the relationship. And it's very hard for someone who has hyper empathy, for instance, just one of the traits. 
let's say, the hyper-empathy, mm-hmm. to know what it would feel like to be less empathetic, to not feel responsive to other people's needs without really even knowing them that well. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the risk factor is, is is that we have these elevated temperament traits that, that we take with us into the next relationship, into friendship, into work relationships, that we are the people that between a normal boss and a pathological boss, we pick the pathological boss. We just do. So, you know, um, innate temperament traits along with having a pathological parent has created um, a pattern of the way that you see the world that places you at risk. There there are Mm -hmm. things that you can work on and things that can be done that help you increase your level of awareness about your temperament traits, and we go into that um, in the Psychopath book, or you can go by our website, saferelationshipsmagazine.com. Lots and lots of articles on there um, about that, but but you are probably bringing to this equation, you know, two things, innate plus having a pathological parent that is contributing to it, and and, um, raising your level of awareness uh, maybe through counseling or, or, or studying um, pathology a little bit more may give you an edge in your ability to spot it differently in the future. Let me ask you one question, Joe. You're one of the 60 million women, right, or the 60, uh, 60 million people who are affected by a psychopath, right? You're asking you me, there? yes? Joe, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how many other people in your family were adversely affected by this relationship? Um, five. Five? Out of family. Mm-hmm. So it's not only you who were directly hurt, but sure. there were pe- people who cared about you who were also hurt or distressed or upset or traumatized by this relationship. Sure. So in this just one case, you've got six people who were hurt in this one dynamic. Plus my whole community, but yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just it's just an incredible problem. It's just incredible. This was an extreme case, but this was big news. Wow. You're lucky to have gotten out of that one. Yeah. Well, thank you thank for calling. You. Did you Did you have another question or... I don't, well, I guess just because, you know, this was an extreme case and I have really suffered with post-traumatic stress from this and I have, you know, sought out help, but it has been hard to get out of the victim role. You know, I do feel victimized by it and it's been difficult in my new relationships not to kind of play that somewhat myself, if not more than a little bit, you know, and and I don't want to be doing that um but, Anymore. you know, I'm trying to get through that, and that's that's well, kind of where why I called in to kind of see, you know, to explain where I came from and, you know, what I could maybe do now because I certainly, you know, don't want to be preying on others with, you know, my pity party either. Well, just I'm just going to echo what Sandra said, which is it's probably what is best about you that made you a target because 
like like she was just describing uh, the psychopath who says, "Oh, I always wanted to take a lawyer down, or I always wanted to take a CEO down." I think there must be something innate in the psychopath that makes them want to take down the best women. You're one of the yeah, best. That is true. The, in this so, case, a lot of it was class and privilege and money for sure. In that particular case, that's very clear. And so, hey, before you go. Before you go, I would like to make a suggestion. I don't know if you know about the Areolas program. Have you heard yes, of it? I do. Yes, I uh, have. Has it helped you? I have not started it yet, but I intend to. Well, I really recommend it because not only can it help you with some of the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but also realizing things and, you know, all what Sandra said and just reflecting about what what made you uh so wonderful that you would be become a target but also what you want to preserve of all those qualities and how to become more discerning and and be able to share them with people who really deserve it and not give them to people who don't have you read sandra's book <laughs> oh i'm really on the spot now no i have not but i am please, very familiar please. with sandra's work please I'm so sorry. get this get this well okay that's okay because I'm saying to you, please, please, please get this book because it is so beautifully and lucidly written that, I mean, by the time you're done, you will just sit there and slap yourself in the forehead and say, wow, I could have had a V8 if I'd only known all this stuff. And you'll see, you'll want to, you'll want to be getting this book and, you know, for all of your friends, your female friends, you know, sisters or cousins or aunts or whatever because that's how I feel about it. I I did actually buy copies for a number of people and send it to them and said please you got to read this book I will buy the book absolutely I will buy the book and and okay. Joe also uh, also is to number one make sure you're getting treated for PTSD because PTSD mm -hmm. doesn't get you know well when you're treating I am else. I am thank I you that's good. And, and and secondly is to know that all that has happened to you and I don't say this as a minimizing thing is that you are mm -hmm. having a normal reaction to pathology all people that are non-pathological have a negative re you know impact from pathology everyone I mean there is no one that gets out unscathed. You've been run over by the pathology train and that mm -hmm. we are all negatively impacted. And the thing that is happening to you is you are having a normal reaction to pathology exposure. And um, it, it, it can get better. And, and I, I think the big aha moment comes for the women when they're reading the book or if they come to a retreat or whatever uh, services that we that we offer is when they understand that it was inevitable harm, that everybody has the same reaction to it. And if you are getting, you know, treatment-specific um, help, you know, for your PTSD, then the mm -hmm. information, the education, you know, from the book will just kind of be the aha moment, sort of the icing on the cake for you. But mm -hmm. there, there, there is... There is hope and there is healing from this. And here's so. a thought. Take this with you. Uh, if you get educated and you educate five other people and then each of those five people educates five other people 
eventually all those 60 million women who are presently uh, suffering from this, you know, horrible plague in our society will begin to wake up and we can begin to bring it to an end. How about that? I do. Yes, I do talk about psychopathy quite quite a bit. Um, thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Much healing. Much healing to you. Thank you do we so want to much. Take, do we want to take a little musical break for a second here, or do we have another caller? No, we can. We, we have a song that we picked out just for this topic, Sandra, so we want to play this play this song so we can have a little entertainment. So you ready? Musical interlude. Musical interlude here. Radio, uh, a very topical song, but maybe not for the reason everybody is thinking. Um, How many country songs are like that? They promote women to support and subject themselves or submit themselves to pathology. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly certainly a topic, and it's, it's, it's an aspect of the whole problem, and... Um, that even music, even music encourages women to be hyper empathetic. Stand by your man, you know, even though he's strange and he goes out and does things you don't understand. I mean, for crying all night, the guy's a freaking psychopath. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions, there's a question from a listener or a comment from a listener who has said that Hollywood and the media seems to have a campaign to normalize psychopathy or at least misrepresent it. And yeah. it, it seems to be a vast problem in terms of people really understanding uh, understanding the problem and dealing with it. And, and there, and there, it definitely does. Uh, um, and the interesting thing, my colleague and I were talking about this that, like the younger girls now that are in their late teens, twenties, and thirties, like each generation that has passed. 
there's been, I think, more normalizing of it and, and more um, tolerance of it. And, and that the, the younger the girls are that we get as clients, the harder it is for them to get it at all. Yeah. Um, I'm 55, and so there, there's, in our age group, there's some form of, of reference to this, but the younger the girls go, um, the less reference there is because the more normalization of sort of the Rihanna kinds of relationships and sort of the whole thug relationship, which seems to be much more ownership and pathology driven in all races. Um, they, they didn't grow up experiencing anything that was remotely normal. No, and then I think that the influx of music and MTV and all of that, because they're very pop culture oriented, much more than we were, it's all driven by that. And so we're having a really hard time with that with that age group. And I know that, you know, we've got dangerous man groups that go into um, – some of the people are doing it with middle school kids, and they're trying to use pop culture as the example of being able to identify different pathologies and trying to do it earlier because the 20 and 30 year olds are not are really struggling with this. Yeah, we need, we need to do outreach to some of these young people in some way, some fashion. Find I mean, make a music video about it for crying all night. We've got a caller. Hi, Hello. Carl. What's your name? Where are you calling? Hi. What's, Hi, what's your name is, and where are you calling from? This is Corey. I'm calling from the U.S. I Hi, was just, Corey. Uh, I, uh, yeah, it's nice to talk to you guys again. I was wanting to uh, say that I know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about the outreach to the children, and especially because I'm an intern at a domestic violence shelter, and I've been exchanging emails with Sandra. So thank you, Sandra, for for all of your help with trying to get some uh, some training going here in this the Midwest area, which sorely needs this kind of this kind of education, uh, because just working at the domestic violence shelter, I can say that it's just it's torture. That's what this is. It's just torture to all these women. And when they're young, they don't come in because it's not fashionable. I mean, in their 20s. And there are cases where these women will call in saying that they are afraid they're going to be murdered, but they don't want to come in because it's not fashionable it's not and they cool. think that they can change them. Yeah, exactly. It's not cool. So I just wanted to uh, I wanted to say that and also to ask Sandra if, if educating these women on uh, – but on, in any age group, if educating these women on the the realities of psychopathic thinking, if that really keeps them from from going back more than say just your regular, you know, power and control wheel type type stuff, and, and just get her to talk a little bit about that. Thank you. Thanks, Corey. Um, well, let, let me tell my story here for a minute. Um, Back in 2005, I was working at a domestic violence shelter part-time, and a lady came in, and I looked at her chart, and it was like her eighth time back in the shelter, and I said, okay, clearly we are not doing our job here. 
clearly there is something that you need to know that we're not giving you in order for you to have an aha moment to stop this cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the same guy over and over again. She had had several different guys, same, you know, same personality makeup. And I said, what is a, I know that if you knew what it was, hypothetically, you know, you would do this to yourself. But let's think out loud. What is it? Uh, what is it that you need to know in order to stop making these kinds of choices? And she said, I guess I need to know how to spot a dangerous man before I get involved. And I said, aha. So huh. I, I started teaching about personality disorders and the differences in abusers that which abusers can change and why, and the ones that have really low treatment outcomes, which are the ones that have cluster B, personality disorder, and psychopathy. And so um, it, it, was, it had such an impact in the domestic violence group. And, and I was just using handouts I had used from 20 years ago and mm-hmm. um, in group when I was teaching people about personality disorders. And so that was really kind of my aha moment that, that this is the differentiation with the women, not the power and control wheel. Never liked it, never thought it did anything, honestly. Yeah. Um, but it was the issue about the, the neurobiology of the brain and who really can change and why and who cannot. And so that night I went home and I wrote the book outline for How to Spot a Dangerous Man. I sent it out to 12 publishers and got 10 offers, which is unheard of in the publishing world. That's like winning the, lot, winning the lotto without buying a lottery ticket. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So I knew, you know, that I that I was on to something that really created the aha moment. And so hundreds of survivors later and thousands of books later and women who come for the retreat, the single issue of turning the corner in the aha moment is understanding the permanence of pathology. And again, not all abusers are pathological, but repeat abusers, Donald Dutton states 85% of repeat offenders are cluster B, and the more times they repeat, the closer that percentage comes to 100%. So being able to teach women um, the difference between those abusers and, and what the permanence of pathology is has all the difference in them turning the corner. And that's really what all, all of our training for the therapist is about, is how to present that information. Well, thank you so much, Sandra. I, uh, before thank I go, I just wanted to commend that last caller uh, for her bravery in calling in, and and, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you to all of you, You're, and I'm really loving this show. Thanks for your answer, Sandra. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. I I just want to say here that what we're what we're getting from uh, all of this is that the individual who really wants to get well versed on this needs to have both of these books: How to Spot a Dangerous Man before you get involved, and Women Who Love Psychopaths, because of course the one is 
uh, how to spot a dangerous man is one that's going to keep you out of trouble if possible. And if you've already gotten in and gotten burned, then you need to know why and how and what it is about you that uh, attracted you to a dangerous man. So uh, I would say that these are two books that are absolutely uh, essential reading, and the How to Spot a Dangerous Man describes eight types of dangerous men. It gives you defense strategies and red alert checklists for each and includes stories of successes and failures. And, and I've found that stories are the best ways to help other people understand things. And when you tell a story about somebody who had an actual experience and you and you hear you, or you hear a story, then you say, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. I know somebody who did that or that happened to me, too. And you can immediately make a connection. So case case studies are a really good way to learn about pathology. we got another caller here. Hang on. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? My name's Joe from Montana. Hi, Joe. Uh, I just got here. Um, so what I'd like to know is, um, what kind of signs can a woman, can a man find in a uh, sociopathic woman? Good question. Sandra, take it away. Yeah. Well, I, and, I, and I have a two-parter. Um, maybe, you want, maybe you might want to answer the second one first. How many men are psychopaths in relationships versus how many women are psychopaths in relationships? I guess either one of them, somebody can tangle first. It's up to you. All right. Mm-hmm. Why do we well, have that issue? I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's so hard for us to even get figures on men who are who are researched. It's even harder to get statistics on women because I'll tell you my experience. is that 25 years ago, I ran one of the largest borderline personality disorder clinics in the state of Florida. And... Well, I thought these women were merely borderline personality. But these women shot my windshield out. They cut my brake lines. They assaulted me. <laughs> they stalked my children. These were not borderline. These uh, were psychopathic women that were underdiagnosed. And that's what happens with me. I mean, this the Jody um, Arias trial and the Casey Anthony. They can't even use the damn P word with them. They keep talking, well, they do, but it's P for post-traumatic stress instead of P for psychopath. So it's very hard to get um, the right diagnosis for women. There's a definite gender bias against diagnosing women psychopathic, and that's unfortunate because I think a lot of the women uh, that have diagnoses of borderline may also be antisocial, sociopathic, or psychopathic. So having said that, um, the the psychopathy in women, I I think, is a slightly different presentation. Um, They are much more victim-oriented. They come in under the radar as a victim. Uh, um, You know, I think they have the high manipulation that um, other, that psychopathic men have um, but I, I think they, say, well... If you don't mind my interrupting, would you say that sure. women manipulate if they're psychopathic? Um, as you're saying, in different ways, they use their charms, they use their beauty, as opposed to men being just raw or rare or forceful. 
Uh, um, absolutely. I, I think there are much, um, much more uh, using <clears throat> the sexual manipulation. Uh-huh. Although male psychopaths are very hypersexual too. So, uh, um, well, those would be the charming con men, right? Yes, they. Yes, they. They often are very charming and manipulative. Um, same thing, I think, with with the women. Only often a a bigger representation with the victim card of having been hurt a lot. So trying to get uh, men to earn their trust, um, and um, but very hypersexual. Yes, beauty. Um, Would they be more demanding of men than the normal um, than the normal woman? Well, because I, I I think often that psychopathy has other traits that go with it, such as the borderline traits, um, especially in the women that mm-hmm. is psychopathic and borderline, that they can be very needy, um, demanding, clingy, manipulative, sneaky, uh, um um, a lot of them have um, addiction issues as well, whether it's sex, um, drugs, or alcohol. And on our website, Safe Relationships Magazine, we have an ebook for men that's called um, How to Avoid Dating Dangerous and Destructive Women. And it's all about um, the, those clusters of disorders um, and how they act in relationships. I think what you were describing before, that could that could be the narcissistic, needy woman, but the yes. psychopathic woman that I'm thinking of is somebody who wants to lure a man into her web almost specifically just to do harm to him out of a need of ego gratification and lack of remorse. Well, well I mean, that's always their goal, yeah, um, is to harm. and it, That's that's what they're drawn they're drawn to, but the presentation of it you may get and I think that's a good point because the presentation of it you very often will not have just a clear cut psychopath. you could have someone who is psychopathic that also has some of the other traits, and so mm-hmm. sometimes the presentation of that can be more borderline. Or more narcissistic, or more antisocial, or more psychopathic. The goal always is the destruction of someone else. It's just the presentation, and that, that's kind of why in our ebook um, mm-hmm. that we cover all of those disorders because the presentation of it can be slightly different with with each one of them. But yes, you're absolutely right. The, the goal is to take you down. Well, could you put that URL in the chat room? And the reason I said that is to make the distinction between a woman who is clingy, needy, demanding, or whining, but she may do that because she may feel uh, that she needs the man in her life. She's not trying to do specific harm to him, although she may not realize that she's doing harm to the relationship. But a psychopath will have, in my opinion, from what I've read, no feelings for the man. It's like the psychopathic man will have no feelings for the woman, and his only gratification and her only gratification is to see them express vulnerability so that they can can take advantage of it just to harm, not to have a relationship, but just to harm. 
Yeah, right. And, and in our our book, for instance, Women Who Love Psychopaths, we we <clears throat> talk about the low empathy spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, psychopathy is at the high end. That's the highest expression of no empathy, no mm-hmm. conscience, no remorse. And on the lower end of those spectrums, it is, for instance, low empathy, low conscience. It's not no, but it's, but it's low. In borderline, um, low in narcissism, high in psychopathy. And, and so um, depending, people can have different uh, levels of experience with low to no empathy, no conscience. And, and Depending on where she falls within that range, mm-hmm. um, it probably has a, a lot to do with um, what you're going to experience. That was the same thing as I was telling my story, having run this borderline clinic. Here I am trying to help these women get their children back. Right, and they shoot my windshield out. I mean, I'm somebody that's helping them in court. <clears throat> But, well, um, I would guess then you probably told them in either very direct or indirect ways that they were their own self-destructive mechanisms, that they were the cause of their bad relationships yes. and bad positions in life, and they just didn't like it. Uh, nobody likes to be criticized, but I guess these uh, you know people who are, I guess, really psychopathic really can't take it well. I think you can read Women Who Love Psychopaths and just mentally change yeah, uh, in absolutely. your mind, men who love psychopaths, and just because I think that there are a lot of high empathy men mm-hmm. uh, who get targeted by these uh, borderline or uh, psychopathic mm-hmm. women, and yeah. just just like you were saying, they use uh, uh, they use the pity ploy. They come in. I mean, they're like waifs. They're like, oh, if you can only save me, your rewards will be so great. If you can help me blossom as I was really meant to blossom by, uh, you know, slaying all these dragons, you know, buying me everything I want, uh, uh, taking me to fancy restaurants and blah, 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 then uh, I will become a real woman and then you will be rewarded for it. But, of course, that never happens. You know, you're just you're just being a schmuck and taken advantage of by somebody <laughs> who just wants to take you down. And, and, and men, men absolutely um, that end up in relationships with them end up uh, have a lot of those hyper traits that we talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I've got several male friends um, from grade school that I've helped through these relationships that um, are just like the women in terms of having high levels of empathy and tolerance and relationship investment. I will say what I do see about the difference between female and male psychopaths is that I think if I had to be locked in a room with a male psychopath or a female psychopath, I would take the male. Honest hmm. to God, I think the females are so the much... The of the gender, isn't it? Oh, that is priceless. Sneakier. So much sneakier. I think they're harder to anticipate. I mean, Casey Anthony and Jody Arias, I mean, they just make my blood run cold. I, I, you know, stick me in a room with Ted Bundy over either one of those women. I well, don't Ted know Bundy what it is. Killer, oh, so was Casey huh? Anthony. Well, Ted Bundy was um, was a killer, and Casey Anthony was a, well, she was acquitted. A killer. Huh? 
Um, yeah. She was when, acquitted, and then so was O.J. Simpson. Well, yeah. Well, right. Yeah, I'm just talking about at, at the core of the disorder. I, I just find the females, mm-hmm. it, it, like in practice, when I had male psychopaths, it was so much easier to stay one step ahead of them and sort of figuring out what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. But obviously with the females, I missed it, or I wouldn't be having my windshield shot out and my brake lines cut. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I found them to be a little sneakier, yeah. Have you ever seen the reality shows like the Mob Wives and the Housewives of Beverly Hills? How many of them are psychopathic versus just stupid? (laughs) Well, yeah, I've watched Mob Wives, but I don't want to get shot by them, so I don't know if I'm going to comment or not. the answer, no problem. (laughs) Drina scares me. Drita, Drita, yeah, Drita. Sandra, that's the question Joe was asking was... um, do you have a number compared to male psychopaths for, for female psychopaths? Yeah, I like no, that. No, I, I yeah. don't. I, that's what I was saying. She was saying is no, that, right? Yeah, it, it's really hard to know because I think uh, they are so underdiagnosed. Aha. So maybe we could add a whole bunch of borderlines and, and histrionics yeah. and, and so yes. forth. Uh, it would be great to have real numbers because that would really it validate. It really would. It would really it validate really, really, whatever investigation yeah. would, uh, would go right. on. But there's, there just isn't the research being done because people mm-hmm. are not demanding it because they're not aware of how, you know, everybody who gets taken advantage of, let's face it, you get screwed over, mm-hmm. you're ashamed. Mm-hmm. You don't want to tell somebody you were stupid, right? And it's not really that you were stupid. It's that you got taken in by a psychopath. And let me tell you what, some of them are really, really good. And if they use that pity ploy, you know, it's not a shame to be taken in because of your empathy. So people aren't talking about it, and they're not aware. Sixty million? I mean, that's just of victims, and that's just women. I mean, what is what is the victims if we count the women who take advantage of men? Is it the same number? Is that 120 million direct victims? Um, that's staggering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. We we don't know, and again. You know, the best place that they count has, you know, for psychopathy is in the women's prison. And yet so many of them on gender bias, you know, are under-diagnosed that Mm -hmm. even though we know in a men's prison that the the number of psychopathy in a men's prison is so high, if you went and looked at at who was actually diagnosed in a women's prison, Mm -hmm. it, it would be such a much lower number. There's just an unfortunate gender bias. And what about the women who don't go get into prison because they use the right. pity ploy to not get convicted? Right. right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, again, I mean, that's the same problem we have in counting psychopathy anywhere is that we, we only count them in the prison system because they're there and we can count them. We can't, we can't count all the CEOs who have never been arrested. Well, I think when I've talked to people um, about relationships, um, I've always said just put your boundaries out there, and if they violate your boundaries, you can give them one or two, maybe three more, uh, three more tries. But then after that, just goodbye. That way, you you don't have to worry about whether or not somebody is actually a legitimate. 
clingy, needy person who is a sweetheart versus somebody who is just out to hurt you. Because if they're lying or if they're somehow, uh, if they have too much emotional baggage, they're still bad for you. Yeah, but right. there are a lot of good women and there are a lot of good men who've been wounded by our society, our culture, by the psychopathic way things are in our society and culture, who deserve, uh, you know, help to get well, to get better, to have a good relationship, and you know, it's oh, absolutely, it's, they, but, uh, yeah, we right, all do. Right, right. The thing is, is, is if you if you're going to date somebody, and let's say you've had because of your experience, um, and let, maybe your background in psychology. You know that you can't forgive too often because they'll just walk all over you. So you set your boundaries out there, and you say, well, look, this is something which is really important to me. You really shouldn't lie to me about this. You really shouldn't do this particular type of behavior. And then if the person says, yes, I agree with you, but then they continue to do that, how often can you forgive them? You have to let them go. You're right. Right, and whether or not that they are pathological or not, it, it is, I don't know, I'm 55 years old. Life's too short. I wouldn't take any of that crap on now. <laughs> so, I know, I know what you mean. Um, exactly. Once you get past right. 40, you... Life's too short, right. Yeah, you, your values, I passed 40. My values have changed besides when I was just chasing. Now I want somebody who, you know, who is cute, nice, relatively attractive, but I just don't want the drama. No right. more drama. I mean, everybody has issues. There's there's no one, you know, that, that doesn't have something. But what we're trying to sort through in selecting a maid is, is not to bring anything that has two lengths of a time in, in being able to resolve whatever that issue is. Mm. Um, you know, a web, pathology, obviously, forget it, because that doesn't get resolved. But but even some, some of the, the other mental health problems, it's just it's too long. I mean, I would never tell, you know, my kids to date certain disorders because I just know what the outcome of that is. So, yeah, you know what, And if if you're over 30, there's no use falling in love with potential. We're, we're, we're much too old. Either they got the goods or they don't at this age. So Either it works or it doesn't. Right. Right. I, I I wouldn't I I if I ever got divorced or my husband died, I would not be waiting on potential on someone. <laughs> no. Nope. Yeah, that's fine when you're 18. You know, all we all all we are is a bundle of potential at that age, but but you know, not after 30. Either they've stepped up to the plate or something. Are you talking wrong. emotionally or what other category? Yeah, uh, emotionally, and, and I mean, I don't know if you were listening earlier. Laura and I were talking about uh, the generations, like the, the kids that are in their 20s and 30s, that whole generations have changed. Like the girls now are talking about, you know, never being able to find guys that don't live at home, that aren't living with their mothers, that own a car, that, I mean, it's just amazing. And I, I, I tell my kids the same thing. If you're over 30, don't be waiting on potential. There's a reason why he lives at home and or she lives at home and doesn't have a car and is struggling with a job. I mean, that's linked to certain things often. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I, you know, like I said, I'm 30, over 40. Oh, okay. Nah. 
they need to be arriving with most of the package at this point. Mm. Uh, Joe, Joe, we're going to go to another call here. Okay. But, uh, thanks, thanks, thanks for calling for in. Calling. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. So. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, everybody. This is Lisa Giuliani. I just have a really quick question, whoever wants to answer it. It was mentioned okay. before that a lot of the, the women or the people who survive relationships with psychopaths end up with PTSD. I think somebody said 60%, um, and you may have it for life. Can you speak to the issue of recovery from mm-hmm. from this, or, or do you just have this for the rest of your life? Well, um, complex... The biggest issue in, in recovery from a pathological love relationship is the issue of PTSD. And that is predicated on um, what when you got PTSD and the depths of it. For women who are coming in um, to a pathological relationship, and already have PTSD, maybe from early childhood, from a traumatic childhood, from a pathological parent, maybe a rape, um, something like that. Then you add on top of that, you know, the, the psychopathic relationship, then the, the treatment outcomes are a little more difficult in complex PTSD. If you have someone who did not have PTSD prior to going into the relationship and acquired PTSD from the relationship, um, treatment is, um, you know, uh, a little better for that. So, um, but so a lot of still have a normal relationship. There's a possibility, of, you know, it, the potential. It, right. Yes, but but you need to get the if you have PTSD, you need to get PTSD treated. PTSD is not one of those things, you know, that that fades out with time. It, it actually increases with time if it's not treated. And so um, a lot of women, like I said, 60% of the women coming out of these relationships got PTSD from, from it, even if there was no physical violence. And a lot of that has to do with the emotional and mental gaslighting that happens from psychopaths. So even if you were not physically assaulted or sexually assaulted in that relationship, a lot of people still have a lot of the emotional pieces of the PTSD. So if you do, just get treated. Um, and you talk a little bit about, about treat, what treatment involves or direct people to where they can get treatment? Uh, um, you can Google in your area uh, post-traumatic stress disorder therapist. Um, we always recommend EMDR, which is stands for eye movement desensitizing reprocessing. It's a really long name, but it's EMDR. Um, that is a, a gentle therapy um, resolution for PTSD. The biggest issue is to make sure that you get a therapist that's trained in PTSD because that's not something to just wing it, uh, you know, with a, a therapist who has not treated that before. There's very specific things to treat. 
but you can get, a, you know, a lot of symptom management and, and then make sure you, um, you know, read up on your own uh, temperament traits that we've been talking about in the Women Who Love Psychopaths book so that you understand the risk level you bring with you to the next relationship so that you can choose uh, differently next time. Thank you very much. Great show, everyone. Thank you. Excuse Thanks, me? Lisa. Oh, you're welcome. Bye-bye. I want to change gears just a minute, Sandra. Is that okay? Sure. One of the things that you and I uh, had a few exchanges about is that since you've been – how many years now you've been uh, uh, talking and teaching about psychopathies, uh, how to spot a dangerous man, when was this – this is uh, – uh, I can't see a date on this book. 2005 for the Dangerous Man book. Okay, so – but you've been working in this field for a long time. You know, I started mm-hmm. publishing about it in 2002. In fact, it was mm-hmm. uh, in October of 2002. And since since then, and since you've published your book, and since Robert Harris published his books, and Paul Babiak, and uh, Adrian Raines, and a few other experts um, have become more vocal about these issues and, and the problems in our society... It seems that a whole slew of uh, instant Internet experts have just popped up everywhere, and there's a a book a minute by, you know, we're not going to name any names here, but, uh, you know, there's a a new book every week by somebody who claims to be the new expert on psychopathy. And most Uh of these people either have no personal experience, uh, you know, as in, having experienced it and then been driven to learn about it because they need to understand their experience. And in a, in a certain sense, um, though my my experience was not as traumatic as yours, both of us were driven to this study because of a traumatic experience, experience with a psychopath. Um, so you almost have to experience it, I think, to really get the taste of it. And once you've tasted it, always recognize that taste. You recognize the scent of it. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, there are these, you know, dime a dozen uh, experts that are writing books or creating websites. And I, I was looking on the Internet recently, and I've noticed that there were several websites where these there's a lot of people who are ripping off your material and try just barely changing it and claiming to be experts. You know, how do you feel about that? Well, it's definitely a double-edged sword. And having, you know, worked in the field of personality disorders for 25 years, I never really thought I would live long enough to see this field take off. Really, I thought I'd retire and it would still be you know, dragging on, um, and really it's only been the last few years that that um, it's just like the pathology explosion. Um, lots and lots of pathology education, and I guess that's the double-edged sword. You know, we keep pressing and pushing and teaching, you know, for pathology education, 
and, and hoping that there is a grassroots movement, you know, um, and, and there has been with, with the onset of the Internet. I mean, every week I see a new blog, a new ebook, a new book, a new website, whatever. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is, yes, there's tons of plagiarism. Um, we send out, you know, copyright infringement notices every week. It's re- I, I could spend my whole life doing nothing but chasing people who plagiarize if I wanted to. But um, I, I guess I wish, I mean, as someone who has worked in the grassroots movement of this for 25 years and, and spent my whole career trying to get the awareness to where it is now, I'm happy that it's there. I guess I just wish that the quality of the education was better. That what I'm seeing is, I guess, a lot of survivors, like you said, who have tasted this experience, and it is so traumatic, and you do want to stop anyone from ever having this happen to them. But the the psychopaths behind every behind every tree kind of thing, I think is starting to to ruin the credibility of the movement. And, and, I mean, even media is starting to pick up on the overuse and misuse of all of the cluster B, I think, disorders and psychopathy. So I guess that's sort of what concerns me and saddens me is, is that the, qual- the quality of the message is getting bastardized. Getting diluted, it's getting diverted. Um, it's really, it's really a problem, I think. So, well, I mean, uh, yeah, and I, I'm not sure. You know, <clears throat> I, I don't have a solution, really. We have a question from a, a listener, Sandra. Um, more or less, the question is, or the statement plus question is, how does someone tell someone else that they know that they know? to be in a relationship with a psychopath uh, when that person doesn't see and thinks they're in love with his charisma and all his other qualities. Is there, I mean, in, in your experience, is there any way to get through to someone, a woman who is in the grips of this kind of a relationship mm-hmm. under the spell? Um, no. I, I, I mean, you can share your concerns and beyond that, um, what I tell people is I think you need to leave the, the door open and, and not so uh, contaminate the, the content between the two of you that she will not come back to you when she is ready. And, and mm-hmm. that it's really hard to wait for someone to hit rock bottom. It's kind of like an addiction when... You just can't believe this person is not at the bottom of, of this situation. And um, waiting on, on, on them to be ready to hear the information. And so as frustrating as it is, you can, you know, um, express your concerns. If it's not received, I would pull back and keep the relationship open, keep the mm-hmm. communication open, because we all know that the end result in these relationships is that the person is harmed and that the relationship ends. And so the person will be back. Might not be on your schedule, 
but they will be back and not to close the door on that communication because that's yeah. when the person is going to be ready to hear it. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And another question was, um, I know you've mentioned treatment for PTSD for people in the aftermath of these kind of relationships, mm-hmm. uh, but another question was, what sort of treatments have you seen that are, are effective uh, for direct victims? Anything mm-hmm. other than standard um, psychotherapy? Well, I think so far I, I haven't seen um, any other supposed treatment programs for this other than ours. They can go to saferelationshipsmagazine.com. There's mm-hmm. information on there about the kinds of treatment um, that we offer. We do a specific approach um, it is a model care approach that I designed over the 25 years of working with people coming out of this that has been really effective. I mean, it, it's gone on to be used and incorporated into other treatment modalities and treatment centers and addiction centers, domestic violence, outpatient, inpatient. And, and so it, it has been adapted and modified to be used in other locations. But it's very specific to people coming out of cluster B and psychopathic relationships. Um, you know, one of the our, – our treatment stuff is either by phone or they come for a five-day retreat, which, of course, is just sort of the beginning part of that. And the long-term portion of that is the PTSD treatment, if, in fact, they have that. If not – a lot of times our retreat nurse stuff is a pretty quick turn-the-corner um, aspect for them. So okay. I, I, right. I just don't know anybody else that's doing it. Okay. We have a call here. So, mm-hmm. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, Joe. This is Amanda from Pennsylvania. Hi, My Amanda. question is, well, I'm not sure... How, if I were to read these books that she's got, um, I basically come from a large family. I have nine other brothers and sisters. And would they be able to describe to me certain characteristics if I, say, felt that, well, not felt, I know for a fact that my my upbringing was very, not only physically, but verbally and, I guess, mentally abusive. I wasn't the only one that received this. My father received this in front of us. Would this, I mean, I've read articles on psychopathy from Sot. You know, it just makes me wonder, would it help me to understand the way she treated us? To put out, Absolutely. Okay, this, is, this is her category, this is where she fits, and... Would it help me to, I mean, I, do I have PTSD still years later? I mean, I've never seen counseling for any of this. The only other person that I've talked to in grave detail about the things that happened to me, the way they treated us, was my is my partner right now. He's the only one that I've ever, and I've only talked, I met him two years ago, and I'm now 40. And I've been, yes. there are... My parent, my mother at the time when I was in high school, she told me that if I were to ever open my mouth and speak about anything that ever happened to any of us at home, 
that she knew for a fact that we would all be separated, you know, uh, orphanage kind of thing, you know, towards the state, that she would, after something like that happened, would hunt us all down, bring all of us back together home, but when she came to where I was, that she would beat me with an inch of my life and tell me that, see, this is your punishment and I'm going to leave you here. So I was too afraid to even say anything to anyone. You know, I'm 40 now and I've, you know, opened up to a large extent to my partner, but no one else really. Mm-hmm. Would that... Um, the 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 first part of the the book lays out a lot of the different types of pathology, um, the the different <laughs> cluster B disorders as well as psychopathy. Um, some of the the other things that might be helpful because this was this was your mother, right? Well, primarily, if if there was anything to be said, or that she didn't want to take and physically do. She'd make my father do towards us, mm-hmm. say, quote unquote, okay, yeah, you know, she would take It was emanating from her, is what you're saying. Yeah, she was she, yeah. she was in charge, you know. Um, I, there, there's also some books that you might read um, uh, Children of the Self Absorbed, and also um, one called Trapped in the Mirror. And <clears throat> both of those. May, they have checklists in there. Um, one of them is by Dr. Nina Brown, and um, there are entire checklists that that can help you identify whether or not your, um, you know, your mother had that level of pathology. But certainly, I, I can't imagine, you know, living in that environment, being threatened, you know, with being beaten within an inch of your life and not coming away with some level of, you know, trauma and or trauma disorder that would need some support in order to recover right now. Whether or not you have PTSD, I, I don't know, but but certainly you experience trauma, you know, at the hands of your parents. So if it's impacting you, you know, in your daily living or impacting your relationship in, in any way, I would tell you this. You know, well, I'm not sure, I'm sure if, it's just sure if it does with, with him because, I don't know, I, with reading thought that's gotten us on to a lot of other things with reading the ways and we're both on a path to find out a lot of things and we both are very much not afraid to question things. Although with me, even outside of when I left home, because when I was 16, I was told, me and another sister were called up, you know, family meeting, that we had six weeks to find a place to live. Otherwise, we'd find everything that belonged to us, clothing, toys, or, you know, personal items, piled on the driveway, doors locked, and that was it. She said that we were the reason they were considering getting a divorce. But that was my mother's way. Years later, I find out of her telling me, that you're ready to move out. But that was her way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, things like that, you know, added to a lot of her punishments that were, you know, she wasn't the, the kind of parent who thought if you spare the rod, your child would be better. She was more or less the opposite. And, you know, she 
if you told her the truth, if it wasn't what you wanted to hear, you got it until you told her what she wanted to hear. Which made me, you know, a lot of times once I left home, I got, I, I would say I was to the point where I rarely spoke, rarely smiled, very rarely looked somebody in the eye, and only out of the corner of my own eye. But I don't think that I, I had no desire to initiate a lot of friendships. It was more, you know, just casual, and had no desire, no interest to date. What was the point? The, 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 best, the best indicator is if today that it impacts your daily living um, and or your relationship as to whether or not um, counseling might be helpful to you. So you have to be able to, to um, look at it and be able to tell if there is still any carryover impact for you today. Okay. What was the, uh, the name of that other book you said something? Uh, Children of the Mirror, and there was another one? Children of the Self-Absorbed. Very okay. good. Yeah. All right. Thank you. you. I appreciate uh-huh. this. There's another Sandra. There's another book that I don't know if you've read it or not, but we've uh, we've been through it and we recommend it highly. And it's uh, it's called the Narcissistic Family. Yes, uh, and I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. So, very good. Mm-hmm. And even even if even if there's no direct personality disordered narcissist right. in a family, the family itself can have a narcissistic right. di- dynamic. And you know, certain children can be triangulated against, and it uh, um, it really it really Very helps. I, you know, I it think. does, and I think it's so applicable now and today because we have um, you know so much um, more. I I I think cultural narcissism that that's applicable to even without a narcissist in the family. um, A lot of times when uh, I I do community lectures, the the people that will ask the most questions are always teachers, and they're very in tune with seeing, you know, as each generation goes by, more and more what looks like, you know, personality disorders within the culture you know, the cultural narcissism um, in children, in the children's worldview, when there may not really be a narcissist at home. And so, yeah, I agree. That That's a great book. There, there's something I just wanted to mention again about the um, the figures, the figures given for psychopathy that we talked about at the beginning of 4%. Mm-hmm. Martha starts 4%. And it occurs to me that those numbers, that percentage isn't spread evenly across the world or in the U.S., it isn't spread evenly across the U.S., that in certain population centers, uh, like major cities, you can have a vastly greater percentage of psychopaths around you, up to maybe, I don't know, even you can let your imagination run wild type of thing to some extent, and there may be 25% in any big city. Possible, Yeah. But then look at Ken McElroy. I'm telling you, that story was, I mean, that was, 
who would ever think that you would pick up a book that's like 400 pages or something about a a, a guy who steals pigs in Arkansas and that you would actually be so gripped by it that you would finish it, you know, stay up at night to read the darn thing? I mean, jeez. It was unbelievable. And but it was it was the most classic case of of an entire community being under the control of a of a I mean it, it was just freaking amazing. I just couldn't believe it. And then and then the way they dealt with this guy when finally they had had enough and the law and and it's it's a classic story of how the law protects the psychopath and does not help the victims. So right. it's a great story. But if we take and, and the average, oh, sorry, Sandra, go ahead. And, and Joe, on the on those numbers, you know that <laughs> that pertains. You know, those are one to four percent. To me, is a wide range. Um, uh-huh. You know, pertaining to psychopathy, but yet, I mean, if, if we look at the issue of, of low or no conscience not just psychopathy. I mean, what we are harmed by in society, you know, is not enough empathy or not enough conscience. And so that greatly expands that number because mm-hmm. we, start, we start expanding into the cluster B area, not just psychopathy, but narcissism. Well, they, you know, they have low empathy. They might have well, some, but it's not enough. It, yeah, I mean, to be honest, when I look at what's going on in the world today and has been for the past 10 or 15 years and I see people's reaction to the horrors that are going on in the world, I I find it fairly easy to believe that, you know, pretty much 99% of the population have in some way been infected with kind of psychopathic thinking in, in terms of a, a lack of empathy for their fellow human beings to some extent. Either that or they've been so traumatized that they don't have any capacity for reaction yeah, anymore. Yeah, one or the Traumatized other. Traumatized psychopaths. And we were, while you were just talking, Sandra, we were doing the math here. We're a little bit slow because <laughs> we're tired, but um, we were taking your 60 million and, or, well, 60 to 90, depending on how many children they have and, you know, the, the article that Laura was quoting. And if we were to take that as an average for the world, it would be about 2 billion people. I mean, that's Up huge. To, yeah. For the entire population, the world population, 2 billion people. I mean, there's no epidemic, no nothing that compares to that. And imagine the effect that people who are traumatized have on that. And, I mean, it's just insane. Well, well look at what Bob uh, Altemeyer found about the authoritarian personality. And the authoritarian follower is the one that is most easily manipulated and induced to do the bidding of the psychopathic or other disordered type, and I think his his number for the number of uh, authoritarian followers in a in a university population that's what he was really working with was something like twenty five percent. Those are those are incredible numbers. Yeah, really high, very high number. So that that gives that gives you the the probable uh, victim population right there. And then on the pathology side, you know, Martha Stout said in her book, one in 25 people have no conscience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's no conscience. Now, what do, what is it when we expand it to low conscience, which is mm-hmm. still inevitable harm? 
when we start looking at, when we start taking the numbers from the DSM, you know, on borderline or narcissistic or antisocial, we start adding those into the mix because people are still really harmed by those relationships because those people's empathy and conscience level are not high enough. And then we just have enormous numbers. It's just mind-blowing. It's worse than, you know, the black death. It's a psychological black death, you know, with mm-hmm. a with almost a 75 to 80% mortality rate. Only it's psychological. People are being destroyed psychologically at an incredible uh, level in our society, in our, in our world. And, you know, people, you know, I, I'm like you. I'm glad that, that people are starting to talk about this. And I think people should realize that if you're a victim of a psychopath, it's not because you're stupid. It's because you have qualities that make you special. Because psychopaths don't go after people who uh, who they can't feel satisfaction in degrading or uh, dominating or tearing down or destroying. They only go after the ones who who have who are quality, and right. it's. It's your very uh, capacity to have empathy, your very capacity to be a creative individual that makes you a target. So people should not be ashamed. They should start talking about it. They should start talking about it with each other. They should read How to Spot a Dangerous Man and Women Who Love Psychopaths. They should make this permanent parts of their libraries. Give to everyone you love. If you love somebody, give them these books, please. I mean, it's just... uh, it's just absolutely essential, and we're gonna. Hi, but but before we before we just wrap it up, I I have one more thing that I need to uh, ask Sandra. I promised a, a listener that uh, we would ask. It's uh, it's it's about your books. Um, he's a guy in Spain, and he is wondering um, if you have any plans to have your books translated into Spanish, specific, specifically maybe the women who love psychopaths. It's a big um... market, Sandra. Oh, I know. Um, this this is foreign rights guy on that one. Um, How to Spot a Dangerous Man has been translated in five languages, and I think Spanish is next up. I don't know, like, when that will be. Psychopath book hasn't yet. It's still with a foreign rights uh, guy who's supposed to work on it, but who knows. Okay, because this guy, uh, he was just saying that he uh, he knows, uh, he's a close friend who attends a support group in Spain for women who have suffered physical and or emo- emotional abuse. And he he heard her mention that the, the leader of this group had mentioned psychopaths recently, but and he immediately thought of your book and, and was hoping um, that, you know, that kind, of, that the kind of book or your book would be available so he could pass it around yeah. to people he knows, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's a project, I suppose, to. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I think we're going to to wrap it up. Um, we apologize for the the dodgy beginning to this uh, to the show. We will get that cleaned up for the archive section so that people can listen to it as, right. as, a, as a proper show. And and, uh, and Sandra, you can you can spread it around if you need. We we'll give you a proper uh, cleanup version. And um, other than that, we are really really thankful that you agreed to come and talk with us this evening. Yes, it's been a real pleasure. It's been instructive. Um, it's been kind of like sitting on the porch and chatting. Yes, it sure has. And I'm so glad you guys invited me. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us, Sandra. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. 
Nice. All right. Dan, we'll, we'll, we'll see or hear or be around for regular listeners this time next week for the next Sock Talk radio show. Over and out.